0: In the case of venture, profitability is some distant thought. Sometimes we wish it was sooner, but it's not something we invest against. You have to have a strategy. You have to have something that you believe that you're funding against to build for the future. And being opportunistic is not a strategy that anyone's particularly interested in. I think the biggest common trap is that you find often venture investors are very prescriptive. I've never met a venture investor that doesn't have an opinion about whatever it is you ask them. As an operator, you have control. You can make decisions, you can make changes, very quick iteration, in order to get to the outcome that you're driving to. In venture, we really don't control anything. I mean, The only thing I really control is that first check I get to write.
1: Welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of interviews with top minds in venture capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. In today's episode, I interview Ryan Floyd, one of the founding partners at Storm Ventures. We talk about the evolution of Storm's investment process where it's important to stay out of the way as an investor, and what it means to be a client-oriented firm. As always, if you've got questions or comments, email me at vc at heavybit.com. Ryan, welcome to Venture Confidential. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'd love to start with how you got into venture. You're one of the few people on this podcast that dove right
0: into it post-college. Yes, so how did I get into venture? So I'll, I'll make it a short story. I went to go work for a group called Summit Partners, which would be a stretch to call it venture, but it was private equity. And I think for probably most listeners, it's pretty close. And my job there was basically to be what the equivalent would be today of SDR. Uh, Could we actually, that's, that's probably a worthwhile
1: distinction. How is venture different than private equity?
0: So I think private equity is kind of further along in the, the company trajectory. So revenue, profits. In the case of Summit, they were looking for profitable, growing businesses. In the case of venture, profitability is some distant thought. Uh, sometimes we wish it was sooner, but uh, it's not something we invest against. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very different investment strategy, very different characteristics of the business. Private equity companies aren't growing as fast, so a lot of differences. Check sizes are very different and so forth. Great,
1: and you hung out there for a handful of years.
0: Yes, so so my job was to find and source uh, interesting companies for Summit to invest in, of which I did a few. Uh, actually one of my companies ended up going public, which I'm pretty proud about, and then I ended up joining another one called E-Tech Dynamics, which was an optics business during the telecom build-out in the in the late 90s, uh, and I joined there to run uh, business development. And you also went public there. Yes, and then we ultimately took the company public, which was fantastic. Uh, it was a, just an amazing time because optics really came out of nowhere when the internet became apparent that we really needed more bandwidth. Telecom networks were at uh, basically this need to grow very, very quickly. And uh, there just wasn't a lot of technology out there at the time to do it, certainly not at scale. So you had what was a cottage industry, people making lasers and all these kind of bizarre components, all of a sudden now having to manufacture at scale. So that's what I did at ETAC to enable basically now what we all take for granted, which is the the internet and bandwidth. And then we the, on that, we we ended up going public and then ultimately were sold to uh, JDS Uniphase, another publicly traded optics company. And it was at that point that uh, I ended up starting Storm with a couple of other, other partners. How did you know that it was time to start a venture fund? Well, I'll tell you what the thesis is, or, or, or what the stated reason, and then I'll, I'll tell you the real, the real story. So what we saw out there, uh, and what we tell people, which is, which is authentic and the truth, was that there's a lot of venture investors at that time period that were investing in things they did, had no idea what they were investing in. I think today in the venture business, people have a lot more domain expertise than they did 20 years ago. Uh, 20 years ago, everybody was a generalist. Oftentimes, it came out of banking or something, and they really didn't have any technology depth. Very different today. And we felt that there was really a need for a venture investor to go deep in areas that they knew and understood. And for us, that was understanding the enterprise. And um, the other trend that was going on back then. Which is somewhat true today is that venture funds have grown very large. I think people forget this. To, you know, back then people were raising billion-dollar early-stage venture funds, uh, and this was twenty years ago when uh, there was not nearly the number of opportunities that there are today. And the public markets were still taking companies public at sub-billion-dollar valuations. And we felt there was a need for really an early-stage firm uh, that was investing in domains that they understood, and uh, that was really the impetus to start Storm. But a big part about the story, and you know, and a, and a true part too, is really about the people. Mm. And uh, it's advice that I give everybody that I talk with when they ask me about career advice is to put a lot of trust and faith in the people that you're working with, beyond title, beyond salary, beyond function, or even industry, potentially, because it's the people that ultimately determine your trajectory in life, in companies. And you know, people talk about the PayPal mafia often, right? Well, in my case at E Tech and then now at Storm, it's the Stratacom mafia. So, PayPal mafia was not the first one to, you know, Fairchild had one. I mean, lots of companies that have come before it. And in my case, uh, it was an ATM frame relay company called Stratacom that had gone public and Cisco had acquired. And there was this amazing community around it. And a couple of my partners had been early employees there at Stratacom. And having worked with one of them, Sanjay Subedar, at, at E Tech very closely, It was just very clear these were people that I needed to work with. And I wasn't sure whether Storm was going to be successful. (laughs) I was very concerned because it seemed like a one way street. And I also, at that point, had decided not to go to business school. So uh, my parents were not super excited about it. They had a few comments for my decision to go do venture. And back then, too, I think it was more of a mystery venture. I mean, today you're doing a podcast and people can read about venture. Back then it was very mysterious, what is this venture thing and what do they do and how, do you, how are you successful, how do you find opportunities to invest in? But I think I was able to take the plunge because of the, the people uh, and that's uh, still true today. How did you fundraise for Storm back then? So fundraising, our first fund was actually remarkably easy to raise. And the reason for that was there was really very few investors who could even spell optical. Sure. I mean, no, no, but no, nobody knew optics, like like we did. I think the equivalent today would be if, you know you were part of the an AI team at Google and people felt like you knew AI better than anybody else, or, you know, autonomous vehicles, you could go start a fund today because that domain expertise is, you know, much more rare, right? So it was the equivalent back then, perhaps even greater. And so raising that first fund was easy. But I'll tell you an interesting story about it, about luck and why luck and fortune plays, a big role in this. So, 2000 was an interesting time. Probably a lot of your listeners probably were in high school or elementary school, or I, I don't know uh, what they were doing in 2000. But uh, from a business standpoint, it was interesting because you'd had this internet build up and bubble that had been created, and then literally overnight, it began to unravel. And finally, it happened to telecom as well. And I remember Nortel pre-announced, it was like October of 2000, that they were going to miss their numbers. Uh, Nortel, by the way, isn't even around anymore and went bankrupt. But it was the leading telecom equipment company. And as a result, everything sort of began to implode. And we raised our fund in 2000. And The reason that's significant is if we tried to raise our fund in 2001, Mm. I'm almost sure it would have been very difficult to put together because people's attitudes about venture and optics and their optimism changed literally overnight. If we had raised our fund back in 98 or 99, I would tell you too, we probably would not be around today. And The reason for that is back in those days in 99 and 2000, people were investing half a billion dollars in a single year. And so... I'm not going to sit here and tell you we're smarter than everyone else, and we probably would have made a lot of similar mistakes. But because of our timing that we raised late in 2000, we didn't have enough time to make a lot of mistakes, and we raised it before the crash happened, which no one could really foresee, we were able to raise that fund and, and the rest has been in history. You started this
1: fund with a bunch of former colleagues. Had any of you done sort of venture-venture before?
0: No, we had, we had not, not institutionally. So I'd obviously been at Summit, and mm. uh, so I knew a thing or two about private equity and, 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 and private investing, but not venture specifically. And my partners actually, there had been a Storm One fund, which had existed before 2000 when we started Storm, uh, that was basically a collection of individuals. It was like an investment club, and they had done a bunch of venture investing. Mm. And part of the belief in why we could be so successful is that our deal flow was so good. Uh, We saw so many great opportunities, and so the portfolio was very, very good. So that gave us sort of the confidence to go and and be investors. And of course, being former like operators, I think we had a lot of hubris, which we can talk about, that our belief that somehow you know that would make for great investors. And in fact, sometimes being a great operator is a hindrance to being a great investor. But we had the confidence, I think, to go to go do it it, and it worked out. What
1: are some of the things that change when you go from being an individual investor to running a fund?
0: So, well, I, I I think you're responsible for other people's money. I think that's the biggest thing. You no longer can kind of do whatever you want to do and sort of invest in an idea or a person just because you know you knew them from a prior. Like you have to have a strategy. You have to have something that you believe that you're funding against to build for the future. And and being opportunistic is not a strategy that anyone's particularly interested in. At least the LPs that, that we work with. So I think, you know, that changes substantially. I think you start to have to work as a team. Like you have to be thoughtful for everyone else uh, around the table in terms of, you know, what they're investing again against what you're investing in is at all kind of a strategy that sort of makes sense and is cohesive. You can't invest in competitive things. At least we wouldn't, right? So as an individual, you're sort of free to do whatever you want to do. At Storm, we're very focused just on doing enterprise B2B investing. That's all we do. We don't do any consumer. We're not trying to send anybody to the moon, none of that. So as a result, it's very focused. But sometimes as an individual, you might feel, well, that's kind of boring, right? You just do enterprise B2B. What about this cool gaming company that my friend started? Or and I think all of a sudden you're constrained there as well. Has the thesis changed at all over Storm's tenure? No, you know, miraculously, the the strategy has not changed in terms of focusing on the enterprise and investing in customer problems that we understand. We've stayed very, very true to that, and we've also stayed very true to the stage at which we invest in. What has changed substantially is, you know, what we are investing in. So when we started, things like semiconductors were interesting. We just exited uh, last week. We sold our a company called Salego to Dialog, uh, which we invested in over 15 years ago, 2002. It was a fantastic exit, but, uh, you know, suffice to say, we're not doing a lot of semiconductor investing these days. The last semiconductor investment we made, I believe, was in 2007 mm-hmm. in a company called Sandforce that did very, very well doing solid state disk controllers. So these technology areas have shifted over time. And uh, as a result, we've had to shift with it. But I think our true north has always been enterprise and, and, and knowing those customers. And that's, that's served us well. How do you stay up to speed on changes in technology? Most technology, Targeting these, these enterprise customers, it, it evolves, I think, more slowly than people think. And there's cycles that come and go and ebb and flow that, you know, are interesting, but it's not like they come on for a month and then, you know, they're gone. So I think actually there is, there's time to kind of really get your head around most of these opportunities. Again, if you're within your domain, there are some areas that are more challenging for sure that, that really kind of change the landscape, like, You know, the cloud and what happened with public cloud and Amazon and Google and Azure and what that does in that terms of that dynamic. But that's not really a technology that you got to get your head around. You know, take something like AI that everybody talks about today. That's not a new idea. That's been around for a very long time. It just so happens that now the data and the compute makes it really affordable for most companies to basically implement something like that. So it's not like it's new. And I think that's given us a great advantage. You know, when there are new technology areas, we're generally pretty cautious going into them. So a good example of that would be clean tech. Now, clean tech came on the scene a decade ago, and it was very interesting, especially for most semiconductor investors, because it involved material science. And so, for anybody that had their kind of gravitational center around material science, it was pretty interesting stuff. They felt like they had a real advantage there, and the dielectric stacks and the way a lot of those solar cells were built, very similar even to like some of the things we did in, in optics as well. But we treaded very carefully in clean tech. And we actually ended up not making any clean tech investments, not because I think we were uncomfortable with the technology ultimately, but because we were uncomfortable with the politics. It turned out to be a really good clean tech investor, you needed to spend time in Washington to basically understand where the money was flowing and be somewhat connected there and have a sense for what was happening. And um, that is not a skill set my partners nor I had at all. And so it wasn't a good fit for us. And so we got, you know, we got lucky. Otherwise, I think we probably would have you know, ultimately had made some, some investments there. And I think that lesson has really helped me as I think about new technology areas and new areas to venture into to be somewhat cautious. You know, One area we're looking at right now that's new is, uh, is health tech. Huh. So we're not alone there. There's other venture investors, I think, too, that are interested in it. I'm not talking about health care or you know, biotech drug discovery. I'm talking about the application of technology into healthcare. And the way I kind of describe it is the opportunity is no matter what your politics are about healthcare in this country, it's pretty easy to believe that technology is going to be part of the solution to drive more efficiency. It just has to be, the The costs are out of control and we need to figure out ways to be more efficient. And healthcare from an IT standpoint has been a relatively late adopter of technology mm-hmm. but is a massive, massive market. And so we've begun to invest and we have a number of investments in that area now that are basically helping to drive efficiency and they've turned out, I think, you know, so far so good in terms of our belief and where, where they're headed. I'd love to hear a little bit about your own educational process.
1: Healthtech is kind of new to you. You don't come from a medical background. How do you go about
0: diving into this new field? So, first of all, I didn't lead it. My associate, uh, our co- colleague at Storm, uh, Arun, has kind of led led the charge, and he's really dug in and has basically built out an ecosystem of people that he knows in digital health, and has basically become a, st- uh, a student. I think is the best way to describe it of, of digital health and, and learning about it. And it's really been a journey he's been on for the last. Three years now. And uh, admittedly, I was skeptical at the beginning about whether or not it was a sector we ought to get into. But he's done a great job, I think, not only of finding some great investments, but also convincing the rest of us at Storm that it's a great place to to be thinking about. One of the things he's done is he's built basically a very small digital health conference that he runs now, where he's able to pull some luminaries together and begin to have a discussion around kind of what the problems are, what are some common solutions. Because there just isn't a lot out there today that's uh, targeted at that. So I think by being early into that market, he's been able to do some interesting things and you know, hopefully that'll lead to good, to good outcomes. You said something interesting earlier that I wanted to come back to. You said,
1: I thought that being an operator would help me be a great investor and sometimes it's
0: actually detrimental. How does operational experience trip you up as an investor? Well, It's not a truism, so it's not an absolute. I think you can be a great operator and then become a great venture investor, uh, so it's not necessarily detrimental. But I think the challenge is, as an operator, you have control. This is the big thing, right? I mean, as an operator, if you're executing inside of a company, you can make decisions. They can be very tactical, usually. You can make changes, very quick iteration in order to get to the outcome that you're driving to. In venture, you know, despite... Kind of how sometimes it's portrayed in the media, I often think that we really don't control anything. I mean, the only thing I really control is that first check I get to write. That, that I mean, that's really when you get down to that's like really what do I complete, how complete control over that, that's really it. And the rest of it then is just doing my best to help where I can, stay out of the way where I can't, and try to make the best decision along the way in the journey. And I think for an operator that's challenging because the natural instinct is, as an operator, I'll give you a good example. Most operators when they start in venture, they think their job is to invest. Turns out your job is not to invest. Your job is to make money, right? And so if you sit on the sideline for a year and don't make any investments, rather than make some investments that are terrible, well, that's that's a good thing. It's mm. better to it's better to be patient and be slow as an investor than to be quick to pull the trigger. But that's contrary to all the instincts you build up. As an operator, because if you want to execute, it's quick, 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 get things done, move, move, right. and uh, that's not necessarily what serves you well as a venture manager. One, one other thing there I think too as an operator to mention is that I think as an operator you can compensate for the team. You can have as an operator, you could have a, a, a B player on your team, but maybe they're just a great cultural fit, they try incredibly hard, they rally everybody, and so it's all right that they're on the team, it's a B player, it takes a team. Okay? You can't have all A players sometimes on your team. As an operator, you can compensate for that individual. You can hire other people around them. You can mentor them and help them be successful because you directly control their activity. As a venture investor, if you invest in a B team or a C team, you can't control anything. They can't hire great people. You can't necessarily influence that. And so when you hear venture investors talk about they want to back the best teams, this is why. The best ones at least talk about this because you really can't control for a lot of that. But your instinct as an operator is you don't place enough value on that team because you think you can compensate for things. You think you can go in and fix it. You can help them, but oftentimes you you really you really can't. How long did it take you to write your first check at Storm? Not long enough, is <laughs> the short answer. Because of the time period that we got started, it was heady time and people were moving very quickly. And so... We were writing a lot of checks when we got started. We were probably were investing in a new company every month. And uh, for the first six months or so, which for a new firm's quite a pace. Mm-hmm. We also took the approach of investing kind of as a team, mm. which is another lesson learned for us. And what I mean by that, it's it's maybe a little nuanced and again reflects the fact that we came out of an operating background, we thought about investing as, hey, let's all get together and we'll make a collective decision about whether we invest in company X. Mm -hmm. And you might think at the surface, well, that sounds pretty good. You all get together, put your heads together and make a decision. But what that avoids is the consequential decision around who really is accountable for making that investment decision. Because in a partnership, nobody's CEO. So who's actually accountable for making sure, and accountability is critical because it forces diligence, it forces focus. In, and it doesn't mean it necessarily drives to a better investment outcome, but I, th- but I think it does in most cases because it really pushes an individual to live with a decision that's, that's, that's hard to make. Mm-hmm. And if you make it as a group, it releases a lot of that pressure, mm-hmm. um, which is again very different than in an operating company where you know you want to make these decisions, they're not nearly as consequential. And so we made that mistake early on is that we were kind of investing as a team and and now I think we've evolved to much more thinking about it as a team and we're very team focused in terms of our approach to investing. We all focus on the enterprise. We all help each other. We help each other on diligence but ultimately it's one person's decision about whether or not that's the right thing to do. And I think it's uncomfortable sometimes because you don't have everybody in the partnership telling you this is hey Ryan this is the great you ought to invest in this is awesome you should absolutely make this investment in fact we push each other to build conviction before investing so we actually push back so that it just makes it that much harder to to build conviction because build that process of building conviction about making an investment is I think pretty critical to success, because um, it pushes all the questions that you need to answer uh, about is this what I want to be investing in?
1: I'd love to hear more about that conviction building process. What is the internal dialogue like at Storm
0: when one of you brings an opportunity? Well, so you know, high level, the process is um, someone on the investment team—it could be a partner, a principal, or an associate—can you know bring bring something to the broader group, and we talk about it every Monday, like like many venture partnerships. Uh, and we go through a series of you know, opportunities. And what we try to do in that meeting is to surface if there's any, I kind of t- sometimes talk about them as they're like religious beliefs about things. And the reason I use religious, which may be an interesting word, is because it's an issue of belief. And you never want to be in a situation where you have to, like if you don't believe, if someone doesn't believe something, it's just very hard to convince people. Like it's in religion, it's very hard to convert. You can't convert people, right? It's just it's just very hard, right? So it's an issue of belief. So if if someone in the partnership has just a belief that something doesn't make sense or will never be an interesting business, then you know it's gonna be very hard to convert that person to be a believer. Right. And so I try to I think we all try to get out, there's some issue fundamentally of belief or religion in the partnership. Like someone just doesn't believe a particular area is going to be interesting. You know, I don't know, like uh, open source, uh, just as a big, big high level example. Maybe somebody, and this is not true at Storm, but as an example, could be in a partnership, there may be a group, open source has been a challenging area, there's been some successes, quite a number of failures, it's almost like the jury's still out on it after 20 years, it's amazing, uh, or longer. And someone in the partnership may say, "You know what? Open source doesn't make any sense. We shouldn't be investing in any open source companies." Period. Well, it's going to be hard to convince that person otherwise, <laughs> no matter how big the community is, no how many stars the project has. It doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. They don't believe in in open source. So we try to get those things on the table, and oftentimes that's enough. If someone has an objection, that we'll just pass on an opportunity. Deals just, over. Deals over. Where you know if someone is just that diametrically opposed. There's no absolutes. I mean, if someone, it just conviction needs to be that much higher then, because now you know that there's people in the room who just don't believe that makes any sense at all. So, your conviction about why this makes sense as an investment has to be that much higher. There has to be something fundamental that that person's missing to make you believe that it's that great opportunity that they would be so dismissive about it. So, you might say, Peter, I know you
1: don't believe in open source, I think this team is the next big thing. We're going to agree to disagree,
0: and, and I'm going to put money in here. Yeah, it's not quite that simple, but but yes, it, it it ultimately we make an investment decision around the table by all of us signing the check. Okay, so if what you're kind of driving at is like you know we don't have a voting system, we don't have some complex you know thing in terms of how we vote, and this person gets this weighted or none of that, but. Um, We as partners basically all have to sign the check. Mm -hmm. And and I think I have a very luxurious position where I have a tremendous amount of trust in my partners. So I know that if my partner, Tehi, wants to make an investment, even if I don't believe it's a great thing to invest in, I have trust in Tehi. And I know he's built a lot of conviction because I've shared with him my opinions about it. Mm -hmm. And so I know that's pushed him to think more about it and it maybe unfortunately it's caused him some sleepless nights I know he's caused me some sleepless nights, but that's part of the process and that's that's a good thing to kind of go through. But us all sign the check. In theory, I suppose I could veto something if I refused to sign the check. I could veto or he could or you know, we we could do. that's never happened at least in a first check situation because you know, we just don't get there because we sort of know where people stand and again, you don't build the conviction around it. Um, so, so that's kind of how we progress. We progress through, and the job of the partnership really is to try and push you into areas that maybe you didn't think of, your blind spots. Maybe you got excited about one particular thing, but you sort of missed these two other things about it. Mm. Um, the partnership often will know people in the uh, industry that can be helpful to thinking through the opportunity, and so that's the place where those contacts get surfaced. That can help us think through those investment opportunities. And all of that goes into building, you know, conviction. What are some common questions that you've gotten from the partnership? There's nothing that's gonna stand out that's gonna be, you know, an aha moment. But you know, hey, I don't believe, you know, is the market really big enough? Is, you know, can you really build a big enough business in that market? Is this the team that can go out and go compete with the four other companies that are already well funded in that sector? And why? It's again somewhat probably missed on a lot of entrepreneurs, but it's sometimes very consequential when we decide to invest in a particular company because it means we're not going to invest in any other company in that sector, right? at least for Storm. We try very hard. Sometimes it doesn't work out, but uh, and we end up having competing companies. But generally speaking, we try very hard not to invest in competing companies. And so if my partner wants to invest in company A, that means we can't invest in company B and C in that same sector. And so it's a big, and maybe it's company C. We ha, it hasn't even gotten started yet because it may be a year from, you know, whatever. It may take time for that next competitive company to emerge, but we'll be qualified out because we will have made an investment a year earlier. So it's a lot of questions like that that come up. What is the storm check size? Where do you guys play? We're investing right now out of a $180 million fund. Generally speaking, we do Series A. We do some seed investing, but it's very small. But the bulk of our, Investments are what would be most people would think of series A, where there's already, already a little bit of product uh, revenue. And check sizes are anywhere from a million to five. Sometimes we stretch a little bit bigger than that, but that's generally the the check size. And we try to keep it relatively small because in that zone, because we're going to reserve capital for all the follow on rounds. And, and we need to make sure we, we preserve enough capital to do that. Yeah. Do you try to lead? We lead just about everything we do, uh, and we take a board seat. In almost everything we do as well. Yeah, we found that, you know, the biggest governor for us is time. And that's probably true of most early stage venture investors. And so the companies that we do invest in, we want to make sure that we're investing for us significant dollars and we own a reasonable amount of the company so that we can spend our time and really help them. And the reason that we really focus on the Series A is that we really feel that where we can impact a company's trajectory. Is around go to market. That whole journey around go to market, from marketing all the way through sales and business development and channel. Every enterprise company goes on a journey from that first customer sale to whatever million in, in, in revenue that is fraught with you know bumps and walls and hurdles and you know joys and defeats. And what's amazing is that there's a lot of similarities across all these enterprise companies. What matters actually more than the sector is oftentimes the price point. What matters is are you selling your product at 5,000 a month? Are you selling it at, you know, 20,000 a month? Is it SaaS or is it, you know, a perpetual license or a term license? Is it, you know, does it have hardware or no hardware? These questions are more important than is it a security product or is it a, you know, developer tool or something like that? So. We can apply a lot of the knowledge and experience we've had over the last 17 years then to the existing portfolio companies. and We've learned a lot in terms of what makes sense and how we can help and we've also learned a lot about what doesn't make sense and maybe where you can go off track um, with the companies as well. What are some common traps there? I think the biggest common trap is that you find often venture investors are very prescriptive. Mm. I've never met a venture investor that doesn't have an opinion about whatever it is you ask them. And the problem with that is that for most companies, it's not that simple. It's not just because I had success with my prior portfolio company that went public and had no sales force. And so that's now my new mantra. That doesn't make sense. That's going to work with all the companies going forward. That's not to say every company is a snowflake you and know, is completely unique, but I think you have to take into account the team, the culture, the product, the price point. There's a lot of factors that come to play in thinking about what that right go-to-market strategy is. It's almost like the way we sort of think about it is it's important to have a framework and then within that framework you can adjust but you need to have a framework. That's that's really the way to sort of think about it. It's not like this is the plan that works for every single company. We avoid like the hey we got to hammer everything's a nail strategy, and it drives me crazy uh, on on boards when uh, investors kind of have that mentality. I think that's that's probably the biggest trap. That that by far that's the biggest trap that people run into. That and you know maybe you know close second to that would be just overly optimistic about the business. When venture investors are, are overly optimistic, they often encourage and reinforce bad spending habits. Because entrepreneurs, I think they have to be optimistic. You have to be. You can't. You just. You can't get up in the morning. I mean, and venture investors too have to be pretty optimistic. I mean, have you ever met like a really cynical like venture investor? It just doesn't exist, right? Because you have to believe in the in the future. And and entrepreneurs are even more that way. So if you get a venture investor that just reinforces all the optimism. It can lead to very, very bad business decisions because then you may invest in things you shouldn't invest in, you try to grow too fast, you spend too much money, and boom, you're in a bad spot you're talking about you said it's
1: it's important to be i'll say pragmatic, right like you need to both believe in the vision of the company but also be firmly grounded in the ways the company might go under. How do you balance communicating? sort of talking about those risks in a way that feels supportive and enthusiastic and and like you're bought into the vision.
0: Well, it starts from a place of like authenticity and honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, and that may seem really simple and obvious, but sometimes being honest and being direct, I guess maybe that's a better word. I don't mean honest in the sense of like stealing or whatever. I mean it's just honest in the sense of being very direct with people. I think that's probably where it starts. And that doesn't mean being critical, uh, necessarily, but it means being direct about the, the facts about the business and how, how it exists today relative to what everybody believes it's going to be good or bad. Right. You know, in a negative case, it might be, look, we've got X amount of, you know, million ARR and we've got an awesome customer base and you've got a great team. Like, yes, we had a terrible quarter and yes, you're, Whatever, CFO just quit and your number one competitor just went public and it's been a bad week. But, you know, we've got a great business. And, you know, and so it's looking at that, that existing kind of fact set and helping kind of people think about it. You know, another piece of that is giving perspective. I think it's very hard to expect teams to have a broad perspective on the market because they are in the company fighting to build that business and they're very execution focused. And so one of the valuable things I think venture investors can bring to the, to the table is just a broader perspective on what's happening out in the market in general. You know, a CEO is just not going to be seeing all of that day in, day out. They may know a lot about what's happening maybe with a particular competitor or with a particular customer, but what's happening in kind of the broader market, especially for Storm where we're just doing enterprise investing, that's a big piece of what we can bring to help kind of, you know, give, give some perspective. How have your relationships with founders changed since you gotten into venture? How is Ryan now different from Ryan in the early days? It's very different. And it's a little, I guess, embarrassing to talk about because uh, I just look back somewhat on my history like 17 years ago and cringe a bit. But uh, it's different. And it's different in a couple of respects. I think... Having been inside an operating company before, I felt like I had more control over things coming into venture, which we touched on a, a bit ago. And as a result, felt like I could sort of dictate more than I really could or should. Mm. Um, and that comes across as, I think, for so many reasons, it's it's a bad way to behave. First of all, most of the time, you know what I would dictate or what I thought was the right thing to do, and I had stated as fact, it wasn't that clear. It wasn't that obvious that that is what should be done. Second of all, I think entrepreneurs and CEOs knew ultimately that they had to have. We talked about accountability a minute ago. They ultimately had to be accountable for whatever execution decisions they made. The last thing they wanted, or I wanted, and I didn't realize it at the time, was for me to make any decisions for them. Right? That 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 leads to just bad bad things. So, I think I behaved in a way that probably wasn't the best in terms of really helping these entrepreneurs be as successful as they could be. Mm. And early on, though, I, I think I adjusted and I began to change you know, my behavior uh, in terms of you know, as I saw that it didn't work particularly well and I wasn't getting the results that I wanted to get. And uh, my partner Tehi actually uh, taught me this, that he, he actually started out his career as, a, as an attorney. And uh, as an attorney, of course, you have no control over anything. I mean, it's a pure services business, really, right? Everybody's a client. And so he really had this kind of client mentality. And and that's really the place to come from as a venture investor, that you really come from a service perspective. Um, We're there to make everybody else successful. And if we do our jobs right in that respect, we'll be successful. And that's ultimately the goal. And so a good example of that that I learned from him is, You know, don't try to mold all of these CEOs to work with you. Instead, you change to work with all of them in different ways. So what that means is for some CEOs, they can be very aggressive and hard charging and, you know, and that's their style. So then, you know, your style is perhaps to listen, give them some feedback, challenge them, but try to, give them more context and perspective than just being, you know, you know hard charging, but allowing them to sort of do that. Don't don't fight that because that's who they are and that's that's what you, I mean and that's a great trait in many respects. So that's who they are and let let them be that way and help them be successful if that's their kind of personality versus maybe another CEO that's perhaps more introverted, and maybe very technical. So how do you make that person successful? Right. And that's a different skill set then. And both of those CEO profiles can be successful. It turns out there's just not, there's not one personality that leads to success. So how do you work with that other personality to make them successful? So, so instead of trying to make both of those people mold into what my idea of success is, I got to figure out how to make both of those people successful in like different ways. And I think, you know, that's been very helpful for me because it just it really puts that center of attention on the team and the founders rather than on on me. I'd love to get specific here. You've got
1: hard charging, aggressive CEO, and you've got introverted, more let's say thoughtful CEO. What are some of the things that you do differently?
0: Uh, so I'll think about team. So, mm-hmm. so for example, there's a certain like personality. Let's say, um, that's a good example. Hiring a VP of sales. Let's right. say, you know, both of these two hypothetical example of CEOs are, are hiring a new VP of sales. The hard charging CEO, I know that they're going to have to have a VP of sales that has that style because if they don't have that style, they're going to get just run over. Okay, so it's very important, I think, in general, to to do uh, basically a like a match, a personality match. It's like you know, a dating or something. I mean, you gotta you gotta find you know a cultural fit. For the more introverted CEO, if you have a really hard charging VP of sales, that can sometimes lead to challenging situations because maybe they're going to be overly optimistic about a sales forecast or overly optimistic about the number of salespeople they want to hire or you know just in terms of you know pushing the envelope on representing how much of the product is real versus what's going to get done next month these sorts of things and so you have to like think about balance and what that means and so maybe it's okay to hire that aggressive vp of sales if you've got a great cfo in the company that can be a foil and kind of help the ceo keep all of that so it's kind of thinking about how all these kind of pieces ultimately fit together another good example would be if you have a really hard charging ceo You probably don't need to have a out in front CMO that wants to spend all of their time, you know, speaking at conferences and being really high profile because the CEO, likely that's what they want to be doing. And that'll create conflict if you have a CMO that also wants to be doing that. So maybe the CMO in that case needs to be more of the thoughtful type that's really thinking more about demand gen and like really strategic stuff, which is just as important, but can complement that CEO to make them successful. Whereas the, the opposite might be true in the the other case where you have a more introverted CEO, doesn't really like going out in front of conferences, that's not kind of their thing, so maybe you want a CMO that is more comfortable with that and wants to get out there and do that uh, and is more out in front.
1: What are some of the other things
0: that you do or that Storm does to be really client-centered? I think the litmus test for us is that I want you know every CEO, team that we work with to look at us as a resource. And so what that focuses me on is really thinking about where I can help, but also importantly, where I can't help and staying out of the way. I think you've had other venture investors on the show before, and I'm sure they've all talked about value-add which is important and we can talk about that. But I also think it's important to think about where you can't help. And where you can't help, you stay out of the way. I wrote a blog post c- several years ago saying that you know, there, venture investors ought to take this equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath. Like Your first job as a venture investor is don't screw it up. And again, you think, gosh, that's a low bar. <laughs> but it turns out it's not in all cases. So being thoughtful about where you can help and where you can't. So I'll give you an example of that. A lot of venture investors, especially you know the young Ryan, when I first got into, I thought part of my job was I got to meet with all these CEOs all the time. Mm. I got to be on top of what's going on. But it turns out it takes time. It takes time when you know they got to sit down, they got to meet with you all the time. If you're not helping and actively moving the ball forward in those meetings, it's just an update. Boy, that's not a good use of their time because you know even if they're not spending time working at the office and building the business, they got a family. They got other, I mean it's just the last thing they need is another hour gone out of their day. I mean, who has that? Yeah. So, I guess, you know, said a different way, it's trying to put yourself in a position of if you were running the business, how would you really think about what's helpful? How would you really think about what moves the ball forward? And a lot of the time that matches up with what a venture investor will say is value add. But sometimes it's different. Uh, I'll give you another example. Like we, you know, we do a lot of events, but but not a ton. You know, we're not doing an event a week where we ask all of our CEOs to come to a particular gathering or whatever. Because I think we realize that look, it's just hard. It's hard if they're out every single night at one thing or another. Like that's just not a great use of their time. And while look, I would love to have a get together of all of our data science CEOs once every other month cuz I would learn a lot. Yeah. I'm not sure that's necessarily making them more successful. So we try to be thoughtful about that in terms of time allocation. But at the same time where we can put everybody together, you know, we get our security CEOs together, you know, probably once a year, once, you know, twice a year, and there's a lot of value they get out of that as well because then they get to know each other and there's been lots of opportunities that have come out of it in terms of partnerships. So it's just trying to be really thoughtful about if you were them, what would really help? And then trying to avoid everything else. I love this
1: Hippocratic Oath of, of VC. What are other ways that
0: VCs sort of accidentally interfere with companies? Well, I mentioned a few. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned one about being very prescriptive. I mm-hmm. think that's one, right? So just believing that whatever worked before, whatever you were successful with before, that's going to work again. Yeah. I think insisting on hires, I think I see this mistake all the time. Like, you know, you know, you know, Jill and you worked with Jill before at a, at a company. And so you're trying to get Jill in as director of marketing at this, at your portfolio company. And look, Jill might be a rock star, but you got to be careful because you don't want them to hire Jill because they felt obligated because you were an investor. You know, you're putting Jill in a terrible spot if you think about it, right? If they feel like they hired her and then she comes in, but they weren't sure if she was the right fit. And then what if it doesn't work out? Like, then it's terrible. Then they made this decision. And then, so I think you have to help companies certainly surface candidates to hire, help them think through who the best person is to hire, but then step back. And ultimately let them decide who the best person is to hire. Cause I, I do think in a lot of situations, investors don't appreciate like if look, if you jump in and torpedo a candidate, the CEO may not wanna go against that because they whatever, that's just not worth it, right? They don't want an investor saying that they made a wrong decision. So unless you're like 100% sure, sometimes you got to be careful with your opinions and mm-hmm. how you share them. It's kind of like running a team with more junior people. It, I mean, it's not exactly the same cuz CEOs are we view them as kind of, you know, equals, mm-hmm. but you just got to be careful with who you and how you share your opinions, you know, around the table.
1: I end all of these the same way, and you've given us so much good stuff on this already. I'd love to know what's what's something
0: you wish you knew going into this. I'm not sure it would have changed my mind about being in venture, but I think I'd I'd say there's two respects that I didn't fully appreciate that had I known at the time, I would have thought about things differently. The first is, it's a long throw in venture. It is a long-term business, and like I was mentioning, Salego just exited 15 years later, and. Uh, that's not typical by any stretch, but you know, look, Hummer and Wimblad invested in Mulesoft. That just exited, you know, went public this year. I mean, that was a long throw too. I mean, there's a lot of examples like that. When you're in a long-term business, you have to take a different strategy. It's really it's a marathon, and you have to think about it that way because otherwise, you're gonna you're just gonna burn out, and you might make decisions that are tactical but not strategic in your own kind of personal career and growth and going back to early Ryan and some of those things that I did that was not thinking long term that was not thinking about how am I going to build relationships how am I going to make these people successful so that later on in their careers they'll want to work with me again i wasn't thinking about that as much then as perhaps i do today and it turns out it's it's not self-serving at all because it's again it goes back to all about how do you make these people successful it's it's so simple when i think about it now when I started, it wasn't obvious at all. The other thing I think that again relates to I think keeping perspective. Uh, the second thing I wish I had a better sense for is how much luck and fortune plays a role in all of this. And you know, you'll find some venture investors like me that maybe will we'll, you know will kind of talk about it. But because it, I think we all as human beings we want to believe that all of our successes due to my intelligence and my ability to do things so much better than everybody else. And uh, that's not the whole picture, right? The whole picture has a lot to do with being fortunate with timing and luck. And the reason that that's important is not that like I plan my career around being lucky. I, I plan my career on how to create more luck, perhaps. But what that means is it keeps you humble. It keeps you thoughtful about what drives success. And and it keeps things in perspective. Like I was mentioning, there's good days and bad days on the journey being an entrepreneur and that makes sense when you kind of keep it in the context of luck and fortune. That you know some things are going well one week, and then your fortunes may change the next month. And so it all kind of fits together. And I don't mean to sound too zen about it, but I think it it helps just give the confidence for me as a venture investor to continue to to, to work with folks, even when things may not be going as well, or when I find challenges, and to have a perspective that the the future is very very bright because. I know what has come, you know, before, and I know fortunes change. And when things are going really well, it also drags me to back down to earth, knowing that tomorrow things may not be going as well. And so, whether I've got a couple, I've got a hot hand. I mean, I'll give you another example. I've got a hot, you know, maybe in a partnership, I've got a hot hand right now, and I've got a bunch of companies that are doing really well. And so I have to be careful about, you know, how do I treat everybody else in the partnership? Maybe you know, my partner's companies aren't doing as well, but you know what? In a couple of years, that may not be the case, maybe totally opposite. So I'd say, you know, luck and fortune is one and then the second is really just kind of having a long-term perspective. Ryan, thank you so much. Anyway, thank you. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, I'm easy to find. Ryan at com or, or on Twitter at Ryan Floyd. And who should get in touch with you? I think any entrepreneur that's trying to build an enterprise-focused business, especially if you've got some product market revenue, would be great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of
1: Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders.